Baptism, then. What is baptism all about? There's a number of new faces here. I wouldn't be surprised if for some people it's the first baptism that they've witnessed. And some of your questions might be, what on earth is this ceremony supposed to show us? Why is it that these Christians are dunking people under the water and and bringing them back out again? And and why is this ceremony so important that the builders of this uh, church building decided they wanted a little pool right at the front, especially for this purpose? What is baptism? And what is it all about? Equally, if you've known either Peter or Anna for some time, you might have different questions. You might be thinking, hang on, both, both Peter and Anna have grown up under Christian parents for as long as we've known them, they've been coming along to church, but why is it only now that they're deciding to call themselves Christians? What's changed? Uh, why weren't they Christians before? Why are they now calling themselves Christians? Well, to answer both of these questions, it's easier to go back to perhaps a more fundamental question. To ask instead, what is a Christian? What is it that makes a Christian? Now, I imagine that most of you will have some idea, understanding, about what a Christian is. However vague that may be, you will have in your mind some impression of, yeah, I've heard of Christians, this is what I think a Christian is. And so some of you might say, oh, a Christian is somebody who comes along to church. And you might say, well, okay, there's, there's some truth to that. Christians do come to church. But it can't be the defining feature of a Christian, can it? Because there are many people here this morning who, by their own admission, aren't Christians. So just to equate a Christian with a person who who does certain things or or comes to church or whatever else it might be, that definition isn't adequate enough. So perhaps you might define it a different way. Oh, well, a Christian then is just somebody who chooses to call themselves Christians. Self-identifying. If a person decides they're a Christian... Well, that's who a Christian is. Is that the right definition? Well, equally, the evidence of this morning would say, no, that's probably not a good definition. Because this morning, we've not all gathered to watch Peter and Anna baptise themselves. They don't do this in the privacy of their own home. We're here as a church. And the church is gathering to verify and accept the testimony of Peter and Anna. So a Christian isn't somebody who just self-identifies. You don't just decide yourself. But in becoming a Christian, you become part of the church. So there's more to being a Christian than than these two simple explanations. So what is a Christian then? That's That's the question I'm going to try and answer this morning. And the reason I've chosen this passage that we read is because it gives us two of perhaps the most important aspects of what it is to become a Christian. Now I want to start my first point with a little story. There was once a rich man, uh, and he wanted to buy a nice birthday present for his mother. And one day he was looking through the newspaper, and he saw this advert for an exotic bird. And this bird had been trained to speak three different languages. This bird could sing opera, and this bird would learn to mimic the voice of its owner. Wow, thought the man, this is a fantastic present. It was quite expensive, £50,000. But no problem, he thought, it's such a good present. So he rang up the advert. I want this bird for my mother. Get it delivered. Anyway, his mother's birthday came. And the day after, he rang her up all excited. Mother, did you get the bird I sent you? What did you think of it? And she says, oh, thank you very much, son. I had it last night. It was delicious. (laughs) It's a silly little story, I know. 
But it illustrates perhaps a more important point. It illustrates the point that if we're going to assess the use or value of something, we need to know what that thing is for. If we're going to know whether something is any good or not, we need to know what it's been designed for, what it's meant to do. So the question we can apply to ourselves, humanity, you and me, what are we for? What are we here to do? What is our purpose? Well, the Bible gives us quite a clear answer to that important question. It says, for humanity, our purpose is to be in relationship with God. That's what we were made for. We were made for relationship with God. And when I say relationship with God, I don't just mean that we were made to have some sort of knowledge of God. I don't just mean that we were made in order to understand who God is. I mean, instead, the Bible teaches that we were made for friendship with God. We were designed to live here on earth as almost like ambassadors for God, representatives of God in this world. We were designed to reflect something of the goodness of God into this world, to be in relationship with him as our creator, to depend upon him, to trust him, to work for him, to serve him, even to share some of his power. That's the intention for humanity. That's what we were designed to do. So how do we stack up against that purpose? How do we measure up against uh, what we were made to do? How, do we, how well do we meet that criteria? And that's where the unhappy news of Romans chapter 3 comes in. Romans chapter 3 verse 9 We've already made the charge. Jews and Gentiles alike. That just means Jews and non-Jews. Or in other words, everybody. Each, each and every single one of us is all under sin. What is sin? I expect, similarly, most of you will have some understanding, some vague idea of what sin is. But the Bible, again, is very clear about what sin is. Sin, it says, is the tendency of our hearts to reject the God who made us. That's what sin is, the rejection of God. Sin is the tendency to reject the goodness of our Creator. Sin is to say to God, either with our words or just through our actions and the attitudes of our life, God, I'm not interested in you. Sin removes God from his rightful place on the throne in our lives and seeks to put ourselves on the throne instead. It seeks to make us the God of our own little world. That's what sin is. And so, verse 11, there is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. This is the effect of sin. And though sin starts with the rejection of God, well, because that relationship with God was what we were made for, if you break that relationship, it has knock-on effects to every other area of life. And so sin starts with the rejection of God, but it ends up affecting our relationship with, well, every other aspect of life. It affects our relationship with those around us. It affects our relationship with even the physical material world. It affects and damages even our own lives. Instead of 
our lives in this world being working side by side with one another to, in order to serve and glorify God. Instead, life becomes one long struggle for supremacy to make sure we are firmly sat on that throne of our little world in our lives. Life becomes a competition to see myself raised up above those around me. And you see, in this way, sin opens the door then for things like bitterness to come in and gossip to put others down. Sin opens the door for greed and pride and arrogance. And sin leads us to act in ways, for example, like telling lies, deceiving other people. Sin leads us to feel jealous of others, to respond to others at times with hatred or or anger. Sin thrives on selfishness. Who can say that they've never in their lives felt any of those emotions? Who can say that they've never felt that jealousy? Who can say that they've never felt bitterness? Who can say that they've never acted in pride or selfishness? And so you see, sin has hold of each and every one of us. That's what sin's doing. That's its effect. And it's got each and every person. You know, it's easy to open a newspaper or to to read the news online and you'll find all sorts of examples of sin at work. Ah, there's the politicians. That's the deceit. That's the hypocrisy. That's the greed out there. Just look at the way they act. Just look at the way they talk to one another. And just look at the way their lives don't match up to what they're claiming. There's the hypocrisy. You might read about the businessmen or or, or the the, the wealth. 95% of the wealth in the world spread between just a, a few small percentage of people. There's greed. There's real selfishness, you might say. You might read about the criminals. That's what real hatred is. That's what murder is. Out there, it's easy to see. But if we're honest with our assessment, when we look carefully at our own lives, we've got to admit that those same things are in our lives too. Perhaps not as severely. Perhaps they don't lead to to as as severe or, or, or harsh effects as some of those others. But at root, it's the same sin that's at work in our hearts. And, and the sad fact is that often when we're, when we're honest with our assessment, we find that sin in the places where we'd least like to find it. Just think, who is it in your life that has seen you at your worst? Who is it in your life that's seen your hottest anger? Who is it in your life that's been on the receiving end of your harshest comments? For most of us, the answer is probably those within our family those that we claim to love the most, those that we cherish and care for most. And you see, sin is breaking into even those areas of our lives which we cherish the most deeply. Because sin has hold of us. And sin taints even the good that we try and do. Sin has hold of it. And it's twisting our motives. And it's using it for its own ends. So what, you might say? So what? Okay, I lose my temper once in a while. Okay, I I tell a few little white lies. But look, I'm no worse than the next guy, and I'm no worse than them out there. Do you know what? I'd agree with you. 100% I would agree with you. You're probably not worse than other people out there. It's easy. Everybody in the world can find somebody who's worse than them. 
But when the Bible talks about sin, it's not comparing you to the people around you. It's not comparing you to the people on the news. It's comparing you to the purpose that you were made for. It's comparing you to the perfect goodness of the God who made you. And when you assess yourself against that standard, the only judgment that you can make is, I've fallen short. I've not made up to the standard that I was made for. I'm not living as I was intended to. And the first realisation of a Christian is to say, this is me. This is me. When I assess myself honestly, I see sin. I see sin that damages myself. It damages those around me. It damages even the world that I live in. And most fundamentally, my sin is a rejection of the good God who made me and who loves me. Do you recognise that sin in your own life? Do you see that sin at work? Do you recognise the severity of the fact that one day the whole world will be held accountable to God to answer for what we've done, to answer for the way we've allowed sin to, to rule us? Do you know how far short you fall when you compare yourself not to one another but to the standard that God gives us? This realisation is unpopular, It's unfashionable. But for a Christian, it is really indispensable. For any Christian, they must first come to the realisation, I am a sinner. That's the effect in my life. Now that first section sounds very much like bad news. And to be honest, I'd agree with you there. It is bad news. But then in the passage that we've read, we get a very distinct change of tone when we get to verse 21. And it comes with a very little word. Verse 21, but. Here's the assessment of the world. Sinners. Verse 21, but. But now, a righteousness from God has been made known. A righteousness from God. What's that? What is righteousness? Well, in short... Righteousness is, you could describe it as the exact opposite of sin. So if sin, for example, is a life which rejects God, righteousness is a life which seeks God. If sin is a life which breaks God's commands, righteousness is a life which obeys them. If sin has a tendency to damage and destroy, righteousness has a tendency to build up. And repair. If sin is a life which ignores what we were made for, righteousness is a life which fulfills that purpose that we were made for. But the question is who could ever achieve such a righteousness? Who could ever live in that way? Who could ever live a life without once ever hurting another? Who could ever live without once saying a harsh word to those around them? Who could ever live without once telling a lie? Who could ever live without once becoming jealous or taking something that isn't theirs or or doing any selfish act? Who could live that sort of righteous life? Who could live a life with a heart that honours and obeys God at all times? There's no one who can manage it. Because sin has all of each and every one of us. There's no one that is apart from one man. You see, there was 
one man who spoke the truth at all times. And he did it sensitively. So to those who needed building up, who were hurting, he would speak the truth gently in a way to build up and help. And to those who were hypocrites and ignorant, he would speak the truth in order to rebuke and teach. But he always did it sensitively and he always did it in love. There was one man who always put other people before himself. Such that there was this one time when he was grieving the loss of his dear friend. Do you know what grief makes you feel like? Do you know how how much it hurts to grieve? And do you know where you want to be? You just want to be on your own, don't you? And as he was grieving, crowds started following him. Because they wanted to see him. They wanted to hear from him. They They were bringing their sick children to him. Help them, please. And this man put others before himself. He put his own grief to the side for a time so that he could sit with the crowds of people and heal their sick and teach them and even feed them. This one man, he never never once acted in pride or arrogance. Have you ever had that feeling when when you're caught with somebody and uh, you're talking with someone and then another friend from a different area of your life comes along and there's that sort of awkward moment where you're wondering, "Do, do I introduce this, this person to them or... And sometimes, to our shame, there's a little bit of of shame within ourselves. Should I really be seen with this person? What are they going to think of me now that they've seen me with this person? Well, this man never acted like that. This man, in front of his peers, those with authority in the towns and cities where he was living, he would openly and willingly associate and talk with and eat with and spend time at the houses with the, the outcasts the rejects, the dirty, wrong people, those who were hated. He would spend time with them because he loved them and he didn't act out of pride or arrogance, but he was selfless always. This man always acted to honour God at every time. There was once a time when he'd spent 40 days fasting in devotion to God. Do you know how hungry you get after just four hours? Imagine what it felt like after 40 days, okay? And after 40 days, the devil himself came and tempted him. I could give you what you want. I could give you that food. I could relieve that suffering. I could give you the whole world, he said, if you would just worship me. And the first thing on this man's lips was the word of God. You will worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he wouldn't bow the knee. This man was always obedient to the command of God, whatever that would cost him. He was obedient even when he knew that it was going to cost him his life. He was obedient to God even to the point of dying. Even though he didn't deserve it. I'm sure you've guessed already. This man's name is Jesus. Jesus is the righteous man. Jesus is the one who lived the righteous life that we could never live. He's the one, verse 21, that the law and the prophets testify to. And the good news that this passage urges you to grasp is that Jesus' righteousness is available for you to share. His righteousness is available for you to receive. Recall, we're trying to answer the question, what is a Christian? And we've said on the one hand, a Christian is someone who recognises their own sin. But on the other hand, A Christian 
is someone who comes to receive the gift of righteousness that Jesus offers. How is that righteousness received? How does a Christian come to receive this righteousness from Jesus? Well, the answer is in verse 22. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Notice what it doesn't say there. It doesn't say that you earn this righteousness by the way you live. It doesn't say Jesus has given you the pattern. Now, if you do well enough at following that pattern, you will also be called righteous. That's not what it says. It doesn't say, oh, well, here's what's going to happen instead. There's some types of deeds which are righteous and there's some types of deeds which are sinful. And if at the end of your life you've got more righteous than sinful, then you'll be counted righteous. That's not what it says. It says Jesus is the one who lived the righteous life and you are invited to share in his righteousness if you will put your faith in him. So will you? Will you put your faith in Jesus? Will you trust him? Will you depend upon him? Will you have your life joined to his? Will you share in something of his life? Will you allow him to be your guide in life? Will you cry out to him to save you from that day when you will have to give an account to God for all that you've done? There is no other way for a person to be saved on that day other than to accept the righteousness that Jesus offers. And so the baptism ceremony that we're going to watch this morning is a reminder of two important changes that have happened in the lives of Peter and Anna. First, the baptism ceremony gives us a picture of them sharing in the life of Jesus. Two of perhaps the most important aspects of the life of Jesus were his death and his resurrection. And the baptism ceremony shows Peter or Anna going down into the water, which pictures them dying with Christ, sharing in his death. And then they'll be lifted up out of the water as though they're sharing in Christ's resurrection. And if they share in his death and his resurrection, they share in his whole life as well. And so they share that righteousness that Jesus has earned on their behalf. And the second reminder we see is that of the water. Water is what you use for washing, for cleaning. And so the baptism ceremony is a picture of the way all of the sinfulness, all of the dirtiness, all of the shame that was in Peter and Anna's life has now been washed away. It's as though they've been washed clean. And when God looks at them now, instead of seeing that the sin of their own life, which they have, they will admit to that. They have that sin. When God looks at them, instead of seeing that sin, he sees one who has been washed clean. And he sees instead the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. The perfect life of obedience that Jesus lived. Spotless, clean and without blame. I want to close with a little illustration that was first told by a German monk 500 years ago. He said there was once a woman of the streets uh, whose life had become filled with all sorts of wickedness and immorality. Uh, That wickedness had become the normal course of her daily routine. She was in debt to, to very many people in the town in which she lived. She was poor, she was an outcast. And she had no hopes at all of being able to pull herself out of this situation. And one day, the king of her country came riding through the town. And as he rode through the centre of the streets, there he saw this woman stood on the corner. 
And as he saw her, the king loved her. With all his heart, he loved her. And the king stopped his horse, and he got off, and he knelt down in the mud next to her. And he made her this offer. Will you come to be my queen? Will you marry me? Who could resist such an offer? Of course, the woman accepted the offer, and from that day, she was taken to be the queen alongside the king. All that the king had was now hers. His wealth, his status, his homes, his houses, his clothes, his authority in the land, all were hers to share. And all that he had, all that she had, sorry, was shared with the king. The king absorbed all of her debt. The king absorbed all of her poverty. The king absorbed all of her shame and her disrepute into himself. That picture is is a picture of what's going on with the offer that the gospel gives us. We are like that woman, full of sin, without hope of lifting ourselves out. And yet Jesus the King comes and says, will you be joined to me? Will you share something of my life? How do you think that woman lived from that day on? Of course, she's, she's, she's an immoral woman by her nature. But now she's been joined to the King. And so her life was was from that day onwards, she lived it trying to match, not her old identity, not what she was, but she lived a life trying to match her new identity as the queen of the king. She tried to live in ways that would honour him. She tried to live as his ambassador, as his representative. She tried to live in the way that he taught her. And for Anna and for Peter, this baptism service today isn't just a uh, wipe your hands and, and consider it all finished. It isn't business as usual from this day onwards. It will be a course of ongoing change in their lives to become more and more like Jesus, their saviour.